Alright, hello everybody. I'm Michael. Uh, welcome back to Colonia Cast, the place where you can get your turtle biology and adventure stories uh, fix. Uh, joining me today in the in the upper right corner is the one and only Jean-Pierre Thompson, uh, a Jack Reptile Naturalist 302. In the, the lower left-hand corner over here, we've got the Georgia geneticist, Ken Wang. Uh, everyone round of applause and then up in the upper left here and cer certainly not last but certainly not least we've got KSU's one and only Jason Wills so uh, we're I guess back today um, and we had some scheduling errors but that's all good so uh, this is gonna be sort of a just us today uh, but that that's fine uh, we'll have a good lineup of guests we've already got more than a month of guests lined up uh, so the goal here is to talk to as many interesting people that focusing on turtles but about wildlife biology conservation uh, and to get sort of insightful com uh, conversations from that uh, which is kind of our our, uh, our unified interest here but um, today I guess we're just going to talk about what we've been up to lately and uh, just kind of bring you along with that so I don't know if anyone I, I mean I guess we could just I'm I'm sitting here and the weather's looking kind of nice today. It's been pretty for the past month. It's been pretty uh, cold out here, and although compared to, you know, I'm getting like a blank stare from Jack right now because I don't think that's the same thing. You you've had really bad weather lately. How's the weather been for everyone? I'm curious. Like, how are we? For me, right now it's 21 degrees out. It was even colder before, and there's a couple feet of snow on the ground, and. uh I can, only reason I can get anywhere is I have a Jeep. So a lot of people that have two-wheel drive vehicles are stuck in their house right now. Yeah, the cold. The, it's been a very cold winter, and I don't like the cold. <laughs> Can't do anything. It's unpleasant. Cold's just not for me. It's kind of interesting, too. I wonder how that's going to affect the turtles, because you guys don't generally have that in Delaware. So that could... It's... it's well... It used to be cold like this more consistently, like 10 to 15 years ago and before. Like we used to have winters that we used to consistently get snow in the winters. But the past decade, we've barely had any. Like there's been some winters where it's never even gotten below freezing. And uh, but the, the weather's like shifted. Like instead of it being really cold and then the wind shifting into spring into March, it's just been like 45, 50 degrees all the way until like the first week of May. So that's like eventually the turtles just come out because they can't it any longer well uh like we witnessed a little bit of that last uh april like it was the end of april and it was still like 35 40 degrees it was way too cold and uh, the snapper was out foraging in the stream at night had like no body weight and uh all the wood turtles were back out but yeah it's normally not not nearly this cold here well and that you last year was weird too because there's kind of a punctuated winter right so it would get cold and then warm and then it was doing that here and then you said in the northeast it was kind of doing the same thing so i wonder how that's gonna if if the snow you're getting now is gonna make it so that there's gonna be kind of a distinct i don't know really how it is up there but here it's pretty a, a distinct cutoff over the course of a week it, it warms up pretty significantly and then it kind of stays at that level but last year it fluctuated and i have a feeling that put a lot of pressure on the animal like they can deal with the cool down probably better than they can yeah. with warming up and cooling down su super quickly like that 
if if it's if, if the temperature is fluctuating really fast, it, it messes with the turtles a lot. Because I I mean, I've I've been to a couple creeks around here like on a 65 70 degree day in like March, and the night before was really cold. Or the, and it's just a constant fluctuation. The turtles will come out, then it gets really cold, and a lot of them are dead. Like. I found like six or seven dead cooters in one day. They, there's no apparent cause of death. They look like they might have just died from the cold. So that happens here. Yeah, they come out and it just messes up the, their metabolism. And, and and you can't, I mean, it, it just, it's so, I mean, however, rumination is so physiologically demanding. You can't expect to induce it super quickly like that. And like that snapper we found, this thing in New Jersey was that thing had to be I mean it was a large animal but it was way underweight I mean you can noticeably tell but that thing was active at night in a creek in mid-April but it was still pretty cold so stuff like that I mean they just can't deal with it a, a distinct cutoff season you probably could adapt and if you're saying where you're at it was like that 15 20 years ago consistently then they're probably still pretty used to it that's that's just a generation of the turtles by you so that's the same adult oh yeah There'll be a. There is there's a there's a there's a really quick cut. It doesn't tend to really there's not much of a transition in temperature anymore. Like like there's not really a spring. It's just kind of like winter. It's very cold for a long time, and then it hits a point where the weather just breaks, and it's within a few days it'll be like straight summer weather. It'll go to like eighty five degrees within a, within a couple of days. Like that normally happens in the early May. Last year was crazy though. I I swear to God. It was really cold. It was. It had to be like fifty degrees on the first day of June. Like the winter would would not go away. Like it wasn't a cold winter, but it lasted like six months. It was. It was. That was pretty bad. I just hope this winter ends quicker than the last one. And yeah, well, you're not the only one getting snow right now, is what I I I hear. So Ken, you're getting snow too. We yeah, we actually had snow like days ago. It was really. APM just started snowing out of nowhere. That's, uh, I, I saw that on someone's Instagram page that it was snowing in Georgia. So I was just amazed by that. And you know, one of the reasons that UGA was one of my uh, school options was because of the weather. But after hearing that, it's a little bit nerve wracking. So, uh, I mean, I could put up with it. it. You know, it's a different, I think it's a different thing than up in, uh, Boston or wherever, so I I think that there's still definitely less of it, but uh, it does make me a little bit worried. Um, I mean, I don't imagine that like the roads in Georgia, like a Georgia winter, like get too terrible. Because I mean, like that's really like the worst of it. You know, it's just like the roads get real bad. So I, I don't know what what are what have like the driving conditions been like down there, Ken. When there's snow in Georgia, I would say the road conditions are worse than like Michigan. Because the problem really? is, yeah, the problem is we don't have the machinery like clean the snow. So pretty much yeah. everything is shut down when there's snow. That's a good point. <laughs> and even Delaware gets snow so inconsistently. I don't think the state has, I don't think the state has really effective protocols in place. And this is, uh, so I'll tell you, let me describe to you what I saw yesterday. So I swear half of the snow plows that I see are not like state, are not set by the state or anything. I, I really do think a lot of them are just rednecks that have a snow plow and they just go out and do it because nobody's going to ask questions if they see a truck with a snow plow. 
I drove past a tractor yesterday, just driving down the middle of the road, a big like John Deere. It was plowing the road, and the dude had a he dude the dude had a bottle of uh, Fireball whiskey and was just taking shots while driving it. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that yeah, that's that's Delaware. Man, you couldn't get away with that. Anything near that in California, you get dragged off the road, something like that. We, I mean, you. This is weird for all of you guys, but you don't see roadkill here. I mean, it's very rare. If you do, it's like a dead deer, and it's all it's all because they they just it doesn't really make its. I mean, a lot of stuff makes its way on the road. I still am trying to figure out why because it's actually strange. You just never see it here in terms of like the cities and everything, and you have plenty of animals that are coming into contact. You don't want to expect to see more. So maybe they're respective at cleaning up the corpses like not long after. Well, you know, killed. I don't actually think that's the case because I think that they're pretty inefficient in a lot of places here. But uh, uh, I think I think the reason is that now you essentially have all the animals that are best adapted to living in close proximity to humans, and uh, they've the gene pool at this point is the one that has all the stuff that's required to survive in very limited habitat. So that's just my, my, my theory there. I think other people have expressed that viewpoint, but it, it's almost, I mean, there's a certain level of, we're still kind of selection is still acting there. Uh, so you do see stuff occasionally, but seriously, the last thing I saw that was roadkill here was a possum and it was about eight months ago. And I mean, you guys get on the roads out by, all of you guys, you get stretches where you get lots of stuff. I mean, I, I've never seen a turtle. So. It's mostly deer, deer and foxes. And deer, they'll, they'll just walk out in the road and just stand in front of your car as you're barreling towards them. They won't even move a lot of the time. Like, they're, they're a serious hazard. They'll be, because deer are just everywhere on the East Coast. Like, especially in the Northeast, they have no major predators anymore. They have it for hundreds of years since we wiped them out. They're, they just they're everywhere like you can in the state park near me like if i drive through there i have to go slow because you never know like 30 deer will just come out of the woods at any moment and there's a field that you, you drive by and it's always packed with there'll be dozens of them and, and it's it's very common to see uh the dead ones hit on the side of the road that are so mangled i wonder how it even happened i'm like was someone flying down this road at like 100 miles an hour because it's essentially just piles of viscera left but yeah. Oh, wow. I see a lot. The uh, deer on like, the Kent State campus, they're like so desensitized to people that like I've been like walking to class or like work and like you walk like 10 feet away from them and they just they like don't even like look at you because they just know that like no one's going to mess with them. So it's, you know, they, they definitely aren't like skittish in the slightest. It's it's like that at uh, the state, Sloan State Park in Southern Delaware. They're, I mean, you can touch them. Like, they'll, they won't even move if you get close to them. If you make sudden movements, they'll get spooked, but they'll let you get close to touch them. Like, not that it's a great idea, but uh, you could. Like, they, they won't even move. But once, like, spring hits, I see a lot of roadkill turtles. Like, once they come out to nest, they're constantly crossing the roads. I find, well, every species I find dead of snappers. Terrapins, I, or I find tons of them because uh, there's a, there's the major highway, which is uh, Route 1. It goes all the way. It goes along the coast of Delaware, and then it goes down into Maryland. But it cuts right through the small, like the small strips of land that separate the ocean and the bay. The terrapins live in the bay, and they come out on these uh, barrier islands and uh, to nest. 
So the, this huge uh, highway crosses it, and they have to cross four lanes of traffic to get to the, the sand, like the big dunes, which is actually suitable for nesting. So, like, but the, before they put up fences to block the terrapins from moving, uh, you could easily find dozens of them killed, like, in, from May to, like, July. They would be all over the road, but... What kind of fences do you guys have put up? Are they because that's like that's an active area of research is how, what kind of fencing material is most effective and does it does it actually work in your experience? I mean, you'd think it. There's, kinda... there's, there's, and this definitely they definitely work. So actually, I I, I uh, they do work. The they, they do work. Yeah, I interned with the Cape and Lopez State Park, and we were last time I was there, we were removing invasive Japanese pines. And uh, the botanist or whatever his name, this, this guy was, he had been working with the state parks for a while. And we were just talking about the terrapins, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I was the one that led the project to put up the fence along the side of the highway. It's about a foot and a half, two feet tall. It's these little wooden poles, and they have like that plastic, that black tarp plastic. I don't know what it's called." But you see it on construction sites. They have that going along it, and it's about four or five miles of it. Like it's long. So they had to be, they had to use, they had to be efficient with their money because obviously the most effective barriers are concrete. Like there's another, about 45 minutes up the road on the shore of the Delaware Bay, there's uh, another site that is that has a huge population of terrapins and it's a small road. And, and there's all these boulders that the terrapins would get caught in. So what they did was they created some tunnels that went under the road and had concrete blocking them from everywhere else and it would funnel them right into those uh, turtle tunnels. I think they work because I see far, I've seen far less uh, dead ones now. Like last year, I don't know if I saw a single roadkill terrapin after they put up the fence. That's good. I know they're, they've been testing the, the efficacy of a lot of that. There's one guy in Canada that does like all a bunch of research on that. And they did this, a similar thing where they put up, it's like tarp. It's, it's like pretty, like rigid plastic tarp and they put it up it's like two feet high and it i mean they literally did it for miles on the on there it's pretty incredible but the turtles are yeah just funneled into tunnels that go under the street and they they make their way through there which it seems like that's the most effective way to do it if they can't climb it but in the past they've done like little fence kind of things that they've just been able to climb up and concrete honestly <laughs> I mean, if they can scale it, sometimes it's a little bit easier. So that that fencing is seems like it's the best way to do it. But uh, by us, you don't really see that kind of thing. The pond turtles, actually, I've never seen it, but there is one spot where so one of my friends sent me a video and, and said, I found this turtle crossing the road, and it happened to be a pond turtle. Uh, so there is a spot where they come out here, and they do actually cross the road, I get, I, I mean, they... They do. I just it would be a rare thing to see, but it honestly could be something worth talking to the the creek about. Because well, right around now, they're probably not moving too much. But come March, they could be moving back into the water. So we could have a similar thing going on. But it would be interesting to compare. Sort of, we'd have to use a similar strategy to by you guys because you've got a lot more experience with that kind of thing. With the candy. yeah. Do you guys have a lot? I, and that's that's actually pretty good on your legislation, your local legislation for getting that kind of thing done because a lot of people aren't that proactive with wildlife barriers. That tends to be low down on the, on the budget of what they do. Yeah. yeah. I've seen several approaches to it where 
it would be effective if they incorporated it into the infrastructure of just how they build roads in general. Like, rather than trying to modify them afterwards, if they just built... Uh, I, I've seen some of these... There's there's many different ideas, but one of the most interesting ones was... You know how, like, there's those concrete dividers on some major highways? They had, like, shorter ones, probably around a foot tall, that ran along most of the length of the road, and then they, they came to these tunnels that go under the road, and it's like a two-foot by two-foot tunnel, so most animals that are small can go through that. And uh, it's just got a metal grate on top. So cars can drive over it, but uh, it'll allow small animals to, to cross the roads without actually being in danger. Yeah, the grate idea is an, an interesting one. There's some railroad. I forget where it is. It might actually be the Mojave. And they've put little grates so when the turtles cross, they get they fall into the grates and they have to, they have to follow them out of the railroad tracks and the, the train will hit them. So that's kind of an interesting way to do it too. I mean, it, it, they all that seems to be the way. It, it funneling the animal sort of as opposed to just blocking it because they can find a way. As we know, turtles can generally find a way to scale things pretty severely. Snapping turtles, climbing chain link fences, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. They can get over. Although you know who does it most effectively is Georgia. Who? Was it you, Jack, that was telling me about the the walls in Georgia? I forgot. Someone's, someone said they're like 20 feet tall. Maybe it was someone at my school, but I agree. Because when you're driving like right outside of Atlanta, the, the dividers uh, between the, the freeway and the – I mean, those things are massive. It's like uh, the Great Wall of China between um, the, the high – There's a lot of that up here in the northeast because it's so densely like populated here. Uh you get like those 20 foot tall walls they have along the sides of the highway and it pretty much funnels the, the noise straight up. It's kind of odd, like the sound will just resonate off of it and has nowhere else to go. It doesn't bounce off into the neighborhoods and all the people surrounding because the highways are loud. It's probably and good plus, for the animals, you know? The animals sometimes, sometimes a deer manages to get over and gets trapped in the highway, but... Yeah, but not that long. They hit a horse here in Delaware. Like a horse got loose, and someone like decked it in their truck. Like, jeez, <laughs> that's not something you want to hit. That's that's like hitting another car. Yeah, we had a hippo at one point in Orange County. The um, the the only so we've got one natural lake in the entire county. Everything else is man-made, which. For some would be surprising. For others that have been here, you'd realize that that's not that that's not far off from believable. Uh, but the one natural lake we have, in uh, it was like the early late '60s, early '70s. There was this zoo that took up a good portion of the county, in the middle of the county, and that natural lake happened to be like right at the outskirts of the property, and some hippo got loose. Someone left the gate open or something. And it made its way into the lake. And I forget what the story was, but they knew it was gone. But it took them like multiple weeks to find this thing. And finally they tracked it down to this lake. That I, I've hiked by it before. I could see where a hippo could go unnoticed in there. And uh, eventually they found it. And they had like a helicopter over it. And it was on the news. And they were like tracking this thing because they got it out of the water. 
and then someone came in and shot it with a tranquilizer and actually <laughs> sound like a terrible person but it's just like it's an insane story but they actually killed it when they tranquilized it because they overdosed the tranquilizer and they, it was on the news so they're like on the news broadcasting this i guess and they shot it they're like yay, yay we, we fixed the problem and then all of a sudden they come back and they're like no it's dead and and everyone's like heartbroken because this thing was like so it's messed up, but it was kind of. I mean, it's just a crazy story. Could you You're imagine? Pretty like, hard at that. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, if no one had noticed, we'd have a hippo just roaming around. It. His name was Bubbles. Bubbles the hippo. In and I see a hippo. I'm I'm I'm, I'm crapping my pants and running in the other direction. <laughs> if, like, if you want to talk about the scariest animals that you could encounter in the wild that would make most stuff's not going to make me run if we're doing field stuff but a hippo that's if i'm getting chased by a hippo i'm finding the nearest tree and scaling that <laughs> like those things can run at like 35 miles an hour on the land and they'll they'll just chase you they don't care they're so they're so aggressive for like no reason they, i think they kill more people than any other terrestrial animal in the world that isn't like a domestic animal yeah, I'd rather I'd rather be faced with an, like a large elephant than have to flee from a hippo. I don't. I think that both of those scenarios are definitely desirable. It's not a situation I want to find myself in where I'm running for my dear life from a hippo. I took a, like this uh, Ice Age Hunters course for like my anthropology like uh, major last semester and like one of the sections was on like the whole basically like debunking the hypothesis that like the Clovis people like hunted uh, like mammoths to extinction. So we like looked at like the biology of like mammoths and like kind of like a sort of the modern sort of studies um, like looking at um, like I guess it's experimental archaeology looking at like uh, taking like Clovis tools and trying like trying to butcher and like um, see how their effectiveness on like modern like elephants and stuff and it's like the, the likelihood of you like taking down something that big is like one in a million so it's like if you're just uh, you find one on like some random turtle trip like that would, wouldn't be a good day for anyone would it no that's an interesting topic right there is I think the humans had more of an impact on megafaunal mammals in like southern climates. I don't think it had as much of an impact on like the woolly mammoths like up in the north. But I mean, there there are sites of. Uh, I mean, there was strong. There was larger populations of humans that had more sophisticated hunting techniques in like northern Mexico and the southwest and the southeast than there were in like Canada and everything. So. And then, yeah, I mean, you know that that. Uh, the Hespero Testudo, uh, the, the the complete skeleton, I guess, that they've got. I don't know what museum that's in, but the one that's got the arrow through the shell. I mean, that's Actually, testament. That's testament to the fact that there were tools around that could do some damage back then. So, even there's a, if you look at the frequent, so like I think well, like one of the things like with the mammoths and the sort of like larger like animals is. Like the uh, frequency of like the sites where, like um, they found like uh, points or whatever like associated with like mammoths and some of those like larger megafauna is incredibly like small compared to like what they found what they found with like deer and a lot of like the I guess smaller megafauna. So it's like 
it, you, you see like the sort of like one-off things of being like, oh, they, they found a point like embedded in like the uh, the bones or whatever. But it's like the likelihood that they're like having you know, success at the very least at like a larger scale is like um, not 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 super like I guess believable. I guess it would make sense with like a large tortoise because that's you know like a fairly slow yeah. animal. But it's, it's pretty interesting. 60% of all tortoises that have existed in the past 15,000 years are extinct now. So over half of all tortoises that have existed alongside mankind are extinct. And uh, most of the ones that are extinct were large too. So without the influence of uh, humans, large it might actually have been more common to find larger tortoises than smaller ones. And uh, I mean, for, they, they're probably the most vulnerable megafaunal animal at the time. Like there's not really much required as long as you can butcher them, that's about it. Like not hard to find. They're not hard to kill. They can't really defend themselves other than pulling into their shell. Or and uh, if, you, if you literally, if you have a rock or something, you can you can chip at the shell long enough, you'll get through it. So those they were extremely vulnerable. And it's been correlated with. Uh, God, I have the I have the article for it. It's like it was from 2015. It was an IUCN article. It was detailing all the extinct uh, colonians from the past, from the Pleistocene, and even into the Pliocene, but. Uh, it goes back far. Like you trace back the, like the, every population of humans, and this goes to other species of hominids that are older than us, not just humans, but like a Homo erectus and all these other uh, species. Whenever they moved to a new area, it was, it's it's at the same time uh, a, a loss of the tortoise diversity was seen. Like there was other uh, was other stigma kellys and centricellys that would no longer exist, and. Uh, some of those, those, some of those are harder to tell because the fossils are like three million years old and it's just shell fragments. But uh, they are burned and scorched, so and have cut marks on them, indicating they were they were butchered. And uh, and in the, in the New World, it's been Hesper testudo, and then the Caribbean tortoises, which were Kelanoidus, and then some more Kelanoidus in the in Central and South America. I think the only the only large tortoise left in the Central and South America really is the yellowfoot, but they're not consistently giant and they live in such a they're so they're they actually are really difficult to detect in their habitat it's a dense jungle so it's not like a 400 pound tortoise just wandering around uh i don't know some pine lands in southern florida like you, you'd see that a mile away but yeah i mean i it's definitely an interesting debate behind that i think there's people that get behind both sides pretty uh quickly just kind of to bolster whatever they think I, th I don't think that a synergistic effect should really, of humans, but also climate and uh, associated ecosystem change, uh, some, some sort of effect of both of those things can be ruled out. So for the, for the insular species, uh, I think that ob humans obviously play a massive role in that, and that's detectable. I mean, you've got species like the... the uh, the uh, masquerine tortoises that in in the course you know I think that it's an interesting debate the, the certain species it's it's definitely not really debatable obviously insular tortoises where we've got recorded history where they went from massive populations to essentially nothing well to nothing uh, it's it's easier to sort of pinpoint the cause there but at the same rate when you talk about mainland species. Hesperotestudo, I guess Hesperotestudo in the southeastern U.S. is the biggest one 
that sort of stands out to me as interesting because Florida back then was altered, but at the same rate, large tortoises, they'd be slower and it would be harder to get away from people, but, but people didn't really penetrate into a lot of sections. And I mean, we're talking 9,000 years ago. So this is not really even recent history where you, where you'd have some level of colonization, but and the ecosystem changed too, but to what extent that's not been measured quite as much. I, I think that there's certainly an effect of both and you have like, like Bahamian tortoises and uh, I guess Antilles tortoises. They're sort of, uh, that's an example where humans sort of dealt the final blow there. But when you have an insular species, it's a whole different deal than a species that is uh, confined to a larger area or, or distributed over a, lo- a larger area. And, uh, I guess the other one too that's interesting is the the gopherus, the bolson tortoises that supposedly used to be uh, ten thousand years ago up in, in more northerly, actually into North America, Arizona, New Mexico, and that one, you know, I think a lot of people use it sort of as PR. It's easier to say that they went extinct because of humans, so we should put them back. I think at the same rate, if it was due to some sort of climate change and habitat change that you'd still have sort of a valid reason to try to reintroduce them. But just saying it's humans a lot of times goes without any sort of quantification. I think that it's, it's important that we actually analyze the question. Uh, but certainly humans can be tra- traced down to sort of causing issues with the tortoises. But did they really cause extinction of some of these mainland species that ranged over wide areas? I mean, it's hard to say. This was... The, the, the beginning of the Holocene and end of the Pleistocene was a pretty turbulent time uh, climatically, and so we can't really rule that that could have had an effect out. In a large ectotherms, it certainly would have a pretty profound, if, even if temperature changed a little bit in that ecosystems. But it's certainly interesting. I mean, it, there's sort of different schools of thought behind this. I think it's I like think- Mike- oh, okay. I was going to say, I think uh, we have to take into account what, what's actually available in the fossil record. I think uh, part of why we know so much about Hespero testudo and all of the sub- southeastern tortoises is the fossil record is amazingly presented in Florida. And uh, Pleistocene fossils are, are everywhere. And, and like Pleistocene age fossils are everywhere in the southeast. And uh, But you go to other areas of the world where uh, the fossil record is way less complete. It's not as well known. And... Uh, it's harder to make conclusions. It's hard to make any conclusions when you're talking 10,000 years ago or more. But uh, there are certain things that you could look at, which you still have to take with a grain of salt. It's like, from what we've found, it was fairly commonplace for humans to feed on these large tortoises. And uh, it was almost, it was complete and total extinction of, of most of them. And they'd survived tens of millions of years of more extreme climatic shifts. Not to say that something didn't happen this time that would have dealt, dealt some blow that a different shift didn't, but uh, you throw humans into the mix and suddenly all of them disappear. And, and we keep finding older and older human remains. Some of them go back as far as 15,000 years. And uh, it's just difficult to, it's difficult to draw any conclusions based on, because all we have is the fossils we're finding. We don't have anything that wasn't fossilized or hasn't been uncovered yet. And, uh, and then it's, it's, it's really a case-by-case basis, because what you mentioned with the, gof- the bolster tortoises, I don't, it, it wouldn't surprise me if they're just extinct there because of the climate change. Like, if the deserts, it's already, like, a, they can't, 
it's already kind of a fragile habitat. It's not like some of the habitats on the East Coast, which if there's a temperature shift, it's more adaptable, like there's still the resources and everything. But if the temperature increases in a desert, well, that's going to cause some serious issues because there's already the resources already stretched thin. They're already eking out a tougher existence. So if the habitat, if the temperature increases any more, they could pretty easily knock them off. In desert, the desert's interesting because there, there are some, I, I sort of take the climate models and projections from past events. I mean, we're talking thousands of years ago and we're trying to interpolate data to kind of build back to that. I, I take a lot of that with a grain of salt and, and try to look at the models that are used. I, I think with just the climate change debate in general, uh, a lot of the debate has become politicized and when stuff becomes politicized you kind of lose track of the science it's sort of we should really be looking at how well these the models that project these things work uh so but i think when you look at the it's sort of the same thing we're projecting climate in the future whereas we're projecting it in the past uh but I, the the models that exist for that region of the world in the in the the the, the, the southwestern deserts they do project that 8,000 years ago, it was more, there was kind of more forest. It was a little bit less. It was kind of like a mixed forest with sort of a xeric ecosystem. So it hasn't changed a ton, but that is sort of retreated to higher elevations, whereas lower elevations were more forested. And I, but a tortoise certainly could adapt to that, but to what extent? I, I'm not really thinking, I'm not really saying my mind is set on anything if it was humans or what, what what really drove this out because to what extent would it like you said it it's sort of it's strange that around the time that humans sort of proliferated around in in this area that we saw these massive reductions but at the same time too we have to get a better grip on the fossil record because when you talk even the hespera testudo uh, the dates that we have for a lot of those species are they're thousands of years apart for extinction now granted that's that could just be due to the fact that we have we have a lot of material, but at the same time, our dating methods have a high kind of standard deviation error. And uh, but it does seem like there was some sort of staggering, and and to map that kind of staggering with the projected extinction distributions would be interesting with where populations were, because then you could really get an idea. And that that's something probably pretty doable to figure out where human centers were, and then mapping tortoise extinctions on that. But that's sort of a computerized. That that would be some sort of statistical analysis. But it would be interesting to do. oh, oh. But I mean, it, the one thing we can deduce is the so humans certainly did eat a lot of tortoises and even large tortoises. How how big is the one in the in the Florida museum? I think it's in. Is it in Florida? Or it was at one point where it's got the spear through the the <laughs> carapace. Florida. Uh, the, carapace uh, the carapace was like 40 or 50 inches, like it was giant. And yeah. the mainland tortoises, uh, they were different, like physiologically different than most of the insular tortoises you see. They have much thicker and denser shells. Like modern Galapagos tortoises have much thinner shells than Hespera testudo. Probably has to do more with uh, the great amount of predators that existed at the time. In the late Pleistocene, there they, they still existed a lot of, of much more dangerous predators than exist today. You had uh, most of the megafauna mammals, but they had to protect. They had need some form of protection against that. And uh, but I also wonder yeah, too to yeah. what extent 
early because we're I mean we're talking again thousands of years ago rather than hundreds of years ago and a lot of communities that sort of evolved to coexist with nature sort of had these kind of built-in systems to to not destroy things to the point where it wasn't because if you had large tortoises like that that were an easy resource there'd be no real uh, advantage to just using them all up I mean, it's not that, and and if someone were to hunt them to the point where some other effect kind of slowly led to their downfall, you've got two different things going on, then then you could lead to that. But to what extent hunting, I mean, it's really kind of speculative. If if people were that, kind of had that kind of foresight that long ago, but you see that with a lot of indigenous cultures even now, they're not really going to drive something to extinction. They kind of do it in in harmony because they realize that at a certain effect you can eliminate an easy resource. I don't think there was much thought or any of it. I don't think there was any kind of systematic approach to it. Like it's, it's not something you can really compare to what was done to the masquerade tortoises. That was like the tortoise equivalent of like the Holocaust or something like that. I know that's, it's not the best thing to compare that to human atrocities, but uh, for, I mean, they, they're all dead. That was millions of them. And we like killed them all within a couple hundred years. And uh, it was a systematic like effort with no real care to what happens to the tortoise population as a whole. It was a short-sighted, we, we take as many of them as we can. We need the food, we need their fat to make oil, we need their oils, we need all of that. No care in the world for what for the long-term effects of taking hundreds of tortoises at a time. And, uh, but it's, it's difficult to, to tell what it was, what the human tortoise interactions were like thousands of years ago. And uh, if they had a major effect, it was probably more gradual. It probably wasn't, they probably weren't going out there and killing every single one they could find, but even just killing a few large adults would probably have a negative impact on the population. Like that's how most really large uh, colonians are. Once they're, they take a long time to mature, they don't reproduce super fast. And uh, like you see with alligator snapping turtles, it's really easy to deplete them. Like, yes, you, you have to do some intense trapping, but even taking a few adults out of the stream will have a negative impact on the population. So, and yeah, that's it's true. Even, like, not too out of all field to reason, like, that, like, the Clovis and, like, the early, like, North American colonizers would have, like, hunted some of those tortoise species. Because I know that they found, like, a box turtle and, like, common snapping turtle. And, like, a, a lot of, like, I guess smaller, like, mammalian and, like, reptile, like, remains at like some of the sites or whatever so i mean i think it's a lot a lot like a lot less uh i guess drastic of a or i guess reasoning or claim or just to think that like tortoises would be probably like on higher up on like the menu than like some of the sort of larger like mega fauna like i think it's there's a lot more just i guess basic like reasoning to think that tortoises would you know have and, uh, that happens really anytime a population of tortoises and most of what we've seen recently has been the insular tortoises. So that's, it's almost, un, it's pretty much, you can't deny that humans are, are largely responsible for the extinction and population reductions of most of them from like a, all the masquerine tortoises are all extinct. Most of the Seychelles tortoises are extinct. Uh, the Madagascan giant tortoises are extinct. And uh, I mean, the, there were giant tortoises in the in the Canary Islands, but it's not as like some try to argue that those were hunted to extinction by humans, but there's no conclusive evidence, and they may have went extinct before humans ever went to those islands. 
And they were actually, uh, they were centricellies. There was Volcanica, Bachardi, there was a few other species, but they were uh, endemic to like the, the, the three or four islands in the, like, in the Canaries group. But they made one extinct to volcanic eruptions and, and changes in the habitat long before humans ever made it to those islands. So, this might be a question for Jack, but uh, do you know if there's like any like good books um, on like Pleistocene era, like reptiles and stuff? I've read a few on like mammals, but I've I've really gone around to looking for like plated like animals and stuff. I actually just got a book when I was in Florida. It's uh, we got it from the Florida Museum itself. It's it's like the history of fossils in Florida. Yeah, I mean, like, I've, the first few chapters are really in-depth, just, like, bone, like, anatomy of just how, like, everything about osteology is essentially how it starts. But it gets to stuff later, and it won't really, it doesn't present a lot of arguments and things as to why some of the animals are extinct. But what it does is it lays everything out for you, all the data that's there, most of the fossils that are collected, and what's common in, in, in Florida. And, uh, I mean, there's some books out there that are less informational, and they're more... There's this one called The End of the Megafauna. It's a decent book, but it's, it's really just the pictures. Like, it, it doesn't have a ton of information. It just depicts ecosystems uh, and with, like, the arrival of prehistoric humans. And it's, it's a lot of that's from the old world, which if we think it's difficult to determine the effect of humans here, you go to, the, you go to Africa and, uh, like, the western parts of Asia where not even, like, Homo sapiens, but older hominids have been spreading out of Africa for hundreds of thousands of years. They've had, it's even more difficult to determine the impacts they've had, but uh, there's that, and there is one article that IUCN published, I mentioned it earlier, where it's, a, it's like a checklist of all the species of turtles and tortoises that have went extinct in the late Pleistocene till recently, and uh, now it doesn't, it's not explicitly saying, it's not trying to make a conclusion that, well, all of them were hunted to extinction by humans, but uh it just lays all the data out on the table. Like there's some pseudemies in there and trachemies that uh, apparently they were they went extinct in like the early Pleistocene. Like they probably just died from died out from some environmental change or who knows. But then you get to some of them and it's pretty undisputable. It's like well then they have uh, they have like uh, what's the word called? I'm, I'm forgetting it right now. Like a pit. What's like a pit where all the tra where all of the weight human waste and stuff is thrown into? You know what I'm talking about, Michael? Like There's a, a name. Midden? Yeah, midden. midden. Yeah. They find uh, like middens from the past couple thousand years on uh, New, uh, New Caledonia and uh, the islands of Fiji in the South Pacific, and that's where they find uh, they find remains of myelinids from there, with that have been cut and they're charred. And these aren't that old. They're they're I'm, the most recent myelinid remains are something like 1500 BC. Like uh, they almost made it to the modern to the modern age and they're older than they're an older lineage than the rest of the world's turtles so that's probably the biggest uh i don't know biggest shame that those no longer exist and i mean they were they were fairly diverse in uh mainland australia and uh, all of the south pacific islands but i mean every time the new caledonian ones might have made it into the ad right i mean that was hypothesized i think i could they weren't they weren't I mean, they were still large. Like, no myelinids were small. They were all massive. But, uh, would you guys know what myelinids are to begin with? I don't know if I, I know you do, Michael, but. Horned turtle. Uh, no, I'm saying that one of the species they think could have been, like, almost less than a thousand years ago that it was extinct. I'm not sure if it was even named, but it was on New Caledonia. 
Yeah, Myelania, yeah, I think Demolify or something. Like, it was a smaller species. It wasn't, their, their whole, their total length was like four feet probably. But you got to keep in mind they have a huge tail and it's heavily ossified, like kind of convergent with uh, uh, glyptodons and ankylosaurs. Like, they had that similar body plan. And, uh, I mean, it was still a large, a large turtle, probably about the size of a small Aldabratortus or something. But the ones well, from mainland, the they were gargantuan. There was ones that had skulls that were over two feet wide, and their they had then their shells were something like six, seven feet long. For people unfamiliar with them, I think the most interesting feature is the horns, the large horns that project from the skull. I mean, that's something that would be so interesting to see a living a living tortoise with that uh, configuration. They're also kind of outside of your traditional classification of pleurodires and cryptodires too which is pretty interesting well theoretically no no one really it's tough to say exactly where extinct tortoises fall on that continuum we can't even make up our minds about where turtles and tortoises fall on on the reptile continuum so so. it's it's generally it's kind of well accepted that uh myelinids predate or at least predate the the, the pleurodire cryptodire split, but they, they can't really say for certain. And I don't think they have. I don't think we can ever get any look into their genome because I mean they've been extinct for thousands of years. So that's gonna that's something we don't really have. It's relying mostly on their skull morphology because that's the what preserves best. Uh, they do the the New Caledonian myelinids are the only ones we have full skeletons of because they're so recent. Like they'll it, it, if you if you find the right middens. You can find full skeletons of them, which is crazy. And uh, they're such a prehistoric, wild-looking animal. You never would have thought that uh, they almost made it to the modern age, just just off by a couple thousand years. And uh, in some islands, like on some of the islands near Fiji, they actually coexisted with tortoises, true tortoises, uh, like Testudinidae, not other myelinids. But it was thought tortoises had always been absent from that region of the world. But... Uh, they found both they found of their bones at the same, in the same midden, they found testudine bones and uh, myelinids, which is interesting, but both, both of them had been killed by, probably by the same group of people. Yeah, it's interesting. I, when you say about the genetics, I mean, it's, it would be interesting to, to see that all the remains that they have and with that tissue, at least preserved, it would be tough, but there could be ways to, they've extracted usable genetic material from mostly frozen animals which obviously that's a different deal but there could be a way to maybe look for something i'm not really sure how that would they'd go about that but if you had some sort of bone or something and it was deep deep reserved uh, yeah if it's fossilized you're kind of done but yeah i don't think it's the case with most of it at this point yeah that's unfortunate i wish go on well just seeing where those tortoises would kind of exist in an island environment is pretty interesting and just to think that we uh were quick to remove them from the environment before we can even get illustrations or anything it's just uh, another group of animals another majestic group of reptiles that was also the last survivors were on new caledonia that also were wiped out around the same time as the myelinids were uh the mikosukids which uh were terrestrial crocodiles they were they crocodilians were adapted, to, adapted be to be terrestrial predators. predators. They walked with they the, walked their limbs the, beneath their bodies. They had, bodies. They had, uh, they had uh, reduced uh, tails, and they had, uh, and they had uh, almost much, almost more of a, of a kind, kind of deeper, of deeper more canine-like, canine-like skull. skull. 
they were designed to be predators on land. And the, the ones in uh, some of the mainland species that went extinct 50,000 years ago or whatever, they were huge. They, were, they could have been as large as 20 feet long. But uh, the, the last species that in, known from the fossil record was present on New Caledonia. They reach about three feet in length, but they could have even been arboreal. There's, there's, there's hypotheses that they were an arboreal species, which is crazy to think a small crocodile that is arboreal. But, but I mean, New Caledonia was an insane place back then. There's also flightless birds, and they still have the world's largest geckos and things like that. It's, it's a crazy island. And the, the vegetation there is like reminiscent of the Cretaceous. It's all ancient ferns and plants that have been isolated for millions of years. There's an interesting book about a biologist who did work there. The contemporary, but it's still pretty interesting. I haven't actually read it, but it's called, um, actually, I don't remember what it's called. It's uh, Islands and the Sea. I'll, I'll grab it right now. I'll show you guys because this was one, well, this was one at the Society for the Study of Amphibian and Reptile meeting in uh, 2018. They were giving this one out to everybody because it was new. And then they continued to do it in 2019. So maybe they'll do it in 2022 because we've got a new cohort of uh, founders, fellows. Uh, so kind of interesting. But they, they gave this book out. Uh, it's kind of a cool. I think it's. Oh, no. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm right now trying to pull up the, that article I was talking about. It's uh, six. It's about 70 pages. It's just. It, it has world maps and uh, di like diagrams of everything and a list of all the colonians that went extinct prior to the modern era, which they consider the modern era uh, starting at 1500 AD. So, let me... Well, okay, I was mistaken about Islands in the Sea, and I think I was getting two things uh, mixed up here because there, there was one of the students at the SSR in 2019 in Utah that was into... Uh, Lichianus geckos from New Caledonia. And have one. Yeah, so he was into that, and we were talking about this. These are from this is a book about the West Indies. So that's uh, essentially that's the Caribbean. So I was mistaken there, but uh, did you just say cool. you have the Lichianus jack? What? What? Did you just say like you have the Lichianus? Yeah, and so the way that it's like a, there's an interesting trade with them. There's all these breeders that breed them, they try to keep them as quote-unquote pure as they can from the different localities. You, you just can't know them because you're buying them from a like breeder. Like a breeder. You, you can't expect, okay, this is this one comes from this exact islet. It might show the traits of ones from that islet, but you just can't be sure because who knows how much crossbreeding and stuff they've done. But I did used to have one. It was one, of, it was one from one of the smaller islets. Not like the Isle of Pines or the main New, Cal uh, New Caledonia main island. It was from a small island. And uh, it sucks because they, they live a very long time. I don't even know why he died. He was really healthy. And uh, I got it when he was a baby. He was small. He was about four inches long. And uh, he actually became larger than my bearded dragon. He was huge. And uh, he didn't eat anything other than... Uh, yeah, that's the article I just emailed you. Look, who, look at everybody who's in there. He got fucking... Scott Thompson, Van Dyke, Iverson, Roden, everybody's in here. Yeah, it's uh, this is definitely a crazy collaboration. Uh, 
but yeah, this for, for anybody that's curious in extinct turtles and tortoises, even though it's just a short window of time, it's certainly the most in. Well, actually, you know, there's more in-depth reviews on certain taxa. The one thing about that's interesting about turtle paleontology is that it, some of the reviews are incredibly extensive, which is interesting because paleontologists have to work with, uh, you know, they have to work with purely morphological data most of the time. And when you're talking sort of a modern taxonomy, that's not really the, the, the way of the future is not really. And, and, and even now the direction is, is to kind of not rely on that. So as you can imagine, when you just have sort of a one data set that you're comparing to, we can kind of think of morphological data as a single unit of kind of understanding and then compare that with genetics that's just kind of more informative. Uh, every nucleotide is essentially a piece of information, whereas morphology can kind of mislead us into thinking something's related when it isn't. Um, but when, when you're just working with one type of data, there's a lot of error that you can be prone to. And so it, it, a lot of times, I mean, we're talking 600 to 700 page dissertations or reviews where they will go incredibly in depth into just even skull morphology. And they'll look at matrices of hundreds of characters to compare species because you really have to try to get as much coverage as possible. I, I mean, when you're doing genetic work, you're you're looking into everything within a certain well even genetic work is is kind of uh is limited in terms of what you're looking at but you're looking at sort of the totality of uh, molecular processes and and protein functions and everything and you can see that when you sequence uh, something's dna but when you're just looking at morphology you're looking at the expression of a lot of those processes that go unnoticed so you're prone to a lot of errors but with this kind of thing, if you can get hundreds of characters, you can be a little more confident that certain species are related if they are and, and that kind of thing. So this is, I would say, certainly one of the most uh, kind of full reviews, but I would actually argue it's kind of pretty concise and compact for the amount of information it includes, you know? Yeah, yeah. and actually, uh, some of the, the some of this, like, portions of this, uh, publication are actually in a lot of the books that you have that I have like uh, the turtle checklist from the Colonial Research Foundation it in, this is like it includes a lot of this and uh, a couple of the other books too as well but another thing I want to say is a lot of the Hesprotestudo is yes if you look at the genus it had a lot of species like something like that I think there was at least 20 species recorded but then you mean you got to take into account a bunch of different things but the dates between a lot of the species aren't aren't looked on as much it's like yes you have some of them from the, but not very many of them actually did exist at the end of the pleistocene most of the hesperotestudo fossils are from like five hundred thousand years ago or before a lot of them are really old it's uh but there but the few species that were uh recorded recently in the fossil record they're very prevalent like uh all throughout florida like hesperotestudo uh crassi cutata is the species that's the really common one uh those those are everywhere like, uh, like uh, that's probably that's one of the most common turtle, turtle fossils. fossils. You know, you probably have a better shot at finding one of those than like a musk turtle fossil. And uh, yeah, you'll find. I mean, you'll find uh, other ones. And there's there's Pleistocene Hesperotestudo like all the way out into Texas and really along the whole Gulf Coast. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking here. This is a map of 
I don't believe, well, this is when they were assumed to be extinct, but also when they were sort of the peri- the periods of time when species were, uh, are assumed to have existed. Uh, so it's not necessarily a metric for extinction because you never know what data you're missing there. Uh, just when you describe the species, if they cluster, I mean, the more information you have, the more available data, you can kind of create a time limit. But a lot of this is just when they were present. And it's pretty all over the board. I mean, you have a lot of animals that were in the late Pleistocene that seem to have, that was kind of the the end of their reign. Uh, Bahamian tortoises, Cubensis, the Kelanoidus. These are probably some more Hespero testudo up in Texas. The, I think, Anne's tortoise and the dwarf tortoise. And then, yeah, probably Crassicutata and... There's another few species, I think. Pennsylvania. There's actually been Hesperotestudo testudo fossils found all the way up the East Coast, like up into Pennsylvania. And a lot of the Pennsylvanian ones are really old, but uh, I mean, there's a fossil site not far from me in Maryland where they've actually found Hesperotestudo. So they, that genus used to range really far north in the country. So even back, it's always been fairly cold in, in that region of the country. So they've had to have had some way to adapt to it. Like, I don't, a large, a tortoise that size, I don't think they could easily burrow, but it's thought, that, it's thought they might have done that in the south, that they might have actually, uh, they might have dug burrows like gopherus, at least some of them could have, but it's not impossible. I mean, sulcatas dig burrows, and your biggest sulcatas can be almost 300 pounds, so, I mean, I don't think tortoise, I don't think they're necessarily the size would limit them from digging a burrow, I think it has to do more with other adaptations. I know that this conversation really could really go like on indefinitely, but do we want to maybe like get into the uh, like turtle trivia and start to wrap things up? That sounds. Oh like yeah. Yeah, um, we've got. I got. Yeah, well, that. I mean, it's certainly interesting. I think at some point. You know, it's one of the most interesting because we're talking about so many different factors, human impact on the ecosystem, which is really a big, uh, a big thing. And then also climatic effects, which is something in this day and age, it's essentially more pressing by the day. Uh, And to get somebody on here to talk about both sort of the the tortoise and megafaunal extinctions and their views on that. and all, but also someone who even could come on here and talk about like climate modeling. That would be something interesting is to get someone who's an actual climate scientist uh, that is maybe a little bit less politicized about it. I, I don't really know. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't really know which way. With that kind of thing, it's become such a political debate uh, that it would be interesting to talk to someone who has kind of raw data and, and a viewpoint on it, just to, someone really experienced in that area to hear what they kind of say about the actual models uh just to talk about and to we'll find people for that i think but in the future we can really have a cool discussion with people and and learn some some other things uh well i i just have one more question for jason because that seemed like it was an interesting class what was the conclusion was it that megafauna were not or, or was it kind of just left open for your interpretation so like, so, like, I think there was like a bit of kind of like left open for like megafauna at large, but specifically looking at like the argument, um, like I guess that's pretty well believed that like humans hunted mammoths to extinction. Like we can pretty much say that like that like likely did not happen. Um, just 
even like when you like actually look into like the, um, the way that the Clovis like moved across the North American landscape and you look at the logistics of it all and then like you look at you know even like the uh, amount of like sites where um, we've had like a uh, Clovis um, like points and stuff associated with mammoth uh, like, um, sites as compared to like um, a lot of like the deer and like the smaller st stuff. Um, I think like the general consensus is that like we, you know, obviously like we can't you know speak with absolute certainty because you know we don't have time machines or stuff but um we well like the clovis specifically and like early like north american colonizers like very likely did not um, bring about the extinction of the mammoth um we definitely have like brought about the extinction of a lot of other stuff but um definitely like probably not the mammoth in fact uh, the um, professor who taught that course dr metton aaron I'm not sure like how far of a stretch it would be to get him on here, but like that would be super interesting to kind of like get um, information about that, like from the source. Since I know he's like done a lot of stuff with like Clovis and uh, like he's done a lot of experimental archaeology. So that might be something down the road to see if we could get him on. I, do have a, I was going to say, I have a question for you. Was that like study just focused completely on like the woolly mammoth like and the human's effect on that or was it more encompassing of most megafaunal mammals or it was just the mammoth um so it wasn't like a specific study we it was like a part of the the, the course or whatever but and we, we were just looking at um, like clovis and specifically like north america like um i know that there were like some uh like gomphotheres or like mammoths and mastodons in like south america and i can't really speak to that but um, I know, like, just looking at um, like North America, that's kind of like what we learned from that course. But it'd definitely be cool to see if we could like get him on because obviously, like, he'd have a lot more information, be able to speak with more confidence about his uh, knowledge on the topic than I think any of us could. Yeah, he'd probably have some insight. One thing I've always been curious about is like the woolly mammoth is the one with the most the, the probably one of the most iconic Pleistocene mammals, but if you think about the, the environmental needs of the woolly mammoth, it wasn't as adaptable as the Colombian mammoth and uh, a lot of the southern ones, which I think if humans were to have had, I mean, this is more of like a speculation here, but if humans were to have more of an impact on anything's extinction, it probably would have been the Colombian mammoth, since the, the woolies might have even been doomed to, to begin with because they were their temperature, their habitat was, was shrinking. It was getting warmer and uh, they, they required more specific conditions. So. And like you said, there isn't even a whole lot of evidence that the wool, that there was extensive hunting against woolly mammoths. But there actually is a lot of evidence for hunt, extensive hunting against Colombian mammoths, and uh, they were really adaptable. Not saying I'm not an expert on them, but they lived in almost every habitat from like northern, like southern Mexico, all the way up to about halfway through the U.S. Like the Colombian mammoths, another one of the most common fossils in like the southeast, like. That would be something I'd like to find, but uh, like yeah, the, the UF uh, their museum has a 14 foot tall skeleton of one, but I mean it, it's it's all difficult to tell. But and so getting into the trivia here, do uh, we remember like who um, asked the questions, or do we have to like respin uh, this? Oh, we're respinning. Gotcha. Oh man. What are our questions today? What kind of stuff are we doing? We don't know yet. That's the whole point. Are we able we to use like sources and stuff? Because off rip, I'm not sure. But like, I do have like, are we able to sure, reference sure. our books? 
Yeah, yeah. Resolve you got two minutes, but you can do whatever you want to get the answer. So take that as you will. Let's do that online. Wait, no, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> it's going to ask some insanely specific question. Oh, God. This is the most nerve-wracking part. Um. Yeah, what's what? What chromosome is? What chromosome is the uh, ND four? No, well, that's I think that yeah, that's mitochondrial. So that's not really. That would have been a that's a trick question. What chromosome is the site B gene on? Well, I had to know this for genetics. But that was like last year, so a lot of this, I couldn't tell you. Well, it's a trick question because it's it's mitochondrial DNA, so it's not it's packed in its own system, sort of. Um, okay, what's the name I'm missing here? We've got Ken, Jason. Okay, you gotta ask like some sort of like, obscure OCHEM question. No, no, that, you know it has to be tangentially related to um, turtles in some way, which I guess the the mitochondrial question is, but. I think that that's kind of a little bit far off. We can make that judge. Okay, I'm pulling up the name generator. I'm sharing it here. All right. So everyone can see this. I'm not just. I'm not kidding here. Um, okay. Three, two. So this is the person that gets to pick the questions is first. Okay. All right. I get to pick the question. You get to, yeah, you get to pick the questions. Oh, I have to remove you. Let's do that. So you get to yeah, pick the uh, questions. And then let's see who I'm questioning. The person that gets to be questioned here, we're going to see. Uh-oh. <laughs> you were telling me not to oh, burn my questions. Now i got to say, i got to tell you that. I feel like I only ask questions that I know something the answer to. I'm not going to ask something that. Uh, is that uh, a diss on so, me or something? So. I, well, I mean, if you could ask the question, you'd probably know the answer. All right. All right. So, you got two so. minutes. We got to someone pull up the Jeopardy music and mute your mics when you're not on. All right. Let me All mute right, my. He's got, he's got two minutes. This better not be all specific sizes of animals, and if I'm not like 0.5 centimeters off, I don't get it right. No, that's not at all what I was going to do. Okay. Because that's kind of a that's like a BS kind of question to ask. Nobody knows well, that I mean, stuff off the top of their head. Somewhat, it would be somewhat valid because at the same rate, like the whole point is we want to try to stump each other, and we're trying to. I guess the point of this is just it's funny, and we also teach the audience something, maybe so. Assuming we're right. Can everyone hear this? How many questions are we doing? I don't remember how, Can how we did this. Is the Jeopardy music audible? I can hear yeah, it. Okay. You got five, I'll do a couple. Five, do a you got five questions.
Am I still am I still sharing my screen? No, I'm not. I deleted that. I'm good. Look I might throw focused. In, I'm throwing one question about size. Yeah, you can. It, the thing I'm is, like, if I don't try. if I don't give you what exactly the the checklist yeah, says, then yeah. give me a little bit of leeway. That's not really I a can't. great great question. Uh, I got one so far. I gotta check this out while Jack's working on that. I guess there's these music tracks that are supposed to mimic evolution. Somehow they like transposed evolution in into music or something. I, I'm just trying to, and it's like it's supposedly so terrible, but it's it's like artistic, so it counts. I don't know really. Uh, I mean, there's like stuff with like, uh, like making uh, music from like color or something. So I'm sure that. Um, there's that like a way to do it, but I don't know. Do you want, is there like one for turtle evolution or like something relevant to this? I'm trying to, I looked it up and I can't seem to, it's all like evolution of music. And Wait, is the time up? I'm not, I have, I have to write two more questions. Hold up. I didn't really time you, but I would say that we're getting close. I got some good ones. Some aren't, some's okay. not too close hard I, I wanted to mix it up so um well i can't find i gotta look it up but i was i was listening to this other this other podcast where they were can you hear me second um actually what happens when i do this can you hear me is it like changing it got my volume got it just yeah. got louder is it like, is it too loud? No. Okay, so I'm good here. Um, it was on this other podcast I was listening to, and they were talking about it. It seems kind of, you know, for something for the sake of art is kind of unfortunate, I think, sometimes. Just because you label it as art doesn't mean it's good. Yeah, that can be said about a lot of, like, this modern, like, stuff. It's, it's I don't know, man. When they do the paint splatter stuff, you know that I I can't really stand that. There's a some people just like that stuff, but I feel I mean maybe I shouldn't be talking. Maybe I should get into that kind of thing because if you can pay, get someone to pay fifty k plus for it, then I guess. All right, you're well over two minutes now. You've had about five, so I'm getting you... only four. Come on. I, 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 I had Jason. I had Jason in like a minute. I had all that stuff. I had all that I, stuff I on my mind. Try not to include certain things. Right. Yeah, you're right okay. Well, okay. All right. I want to make right further entertaining questions, and they actually have decent information, not just like, how big is this? Right, that's or? fair. That's fair. All right. I got one more. I'm trying to think. 
Maybe you just go with the uh, four that you have, and then like Michael has to get like three or above. No, just let, let him get one more. I'll let him do it. I I um I one of the things that was fun this week is I got a subscription to Science Magazine. I guess that came. I'm presenting at a a conference uh, on the Ponter work that I did, and it's associate. It's the age AAAS AAAS. Uh, and they do the science mag thing, and so in Science Magazine they sent me like a subscription to it. It's pretty interesting. The way the magazine works is they do articles on everything, and then they also include the research paper on it. So it's like the ultimate kind of way to do that. But okay, he's got his questions for me. So there's definitely some of them, but I do have. Ken, a, you better one get, on Ken get a drum roll going here. I I got to have a little bit of hype going. Best part. All right. I, I haven't ever asked anyone questions yet, I don't think. All right. So, you ready? Yeah, this is his debut. So. All right. So, the first question, it's not all that hard, but I, I think you'll like it. What was the Latin names of the two tortoise species that were St. Patrick on the Mascarene Island of Rodriguez? Okay. Um, okay. So, the saddlebacked was Vosmerai. Yep, that's one. Yeah, that's Vosmerai. And the domed tortoise was Peltastes. Yep, you got it. Yep, you got it. All right, I got the first one. Yeah, that one I, I figured out. That one I figured All right. Okay, uh, well, that, yeah, that was not too bad, but it's okay. Uh, but this one might be a bit harder. So, on Wolf Volcano in the Galapagos, there's a few different isolated subpopulations. There's a small one that is trapped in the caldera of the volcano itself. How many tortoises are in that subpopulation? 60? 40 to 60? Is Damn. You actually got it. But it's exactly 40 to 60. All right. Let's see. I'm on fire. All right. All right. What is a major morphological well, Okay, difference? wait, wait. Before we go to the next one, the, the reason I knew that is because it's in the Galapagos book, and they're they're isolated on a little ridge, right? It's in the caldera? Yeah. yeah. Okay, they're isolated. So that, they're yeah. isolated. Yeah, I had a feeling you'd remember that one, but I was... Well, I that, that just was... stood out to me, because someone with... Uh, uh, Dr. Offerman, I, Grayson's dad, he went there and was talking about that one, so I, that stood out in my head. All right, so we got a, we got a couple more. Um, what is the... Let me think. What is the westernmost drainage occupied by... What, what is the western and easternmost drainages occupied by uh, Apalachicola? Okay, Official. well, okay. Documented population. Okay, uh, okay. Um, so confirmed or... Confirmed, 100%. Okay. Um, so western, easternmost... Give me a second here. I, I'm trying to think of the one. Okay. The Oklahoma Econfina Creek is on that, right? So Econfina is the westernmost extension. And then the easternmost, is it the Oscilla or the Wasilla? There were rounds. The. No, the you the Aquaconi is one of the answers, but uh, 
the Aquaconi is actually farther east than the Apalachicola. It's, it's the eastern extent. The western extent's the one I'm looking for. Oh, oh, uh, the Cipolla. No. No. I'm wrong, okay. It's, uh, the Chakawatsu. Oh. That's pr- Oh, yeah, well, okay, yeah, you're right. Okay. So, Michael, you're at, like, what, three for four then, or was that the fifth I'm at, one? Yeah, I'm at two. Four. Well, okay, wait, was the Oscilla, then right. the, the Wasissa was right, or the Oscilla, there could be in the Wasissa, but the Oscilla is the. They have been proven to have breeding populations in there, but they have caught random individuals. I suspect that they're both occupying those ranges too, but I just wanted, for the sake of a question, I'm like, which ones are, like, proven to have been studied? We know there's a populations in them. So, there is one more question. Okay, Okay, well, okay, I've got two. So, if you have five questions, I need to get one more right. But if you've got four questions, I'm good. This one's not. Okay. All right, so. so. Let's say you compare the skull of uh, Barber's map turtle with a uh, Cooper's Creek turtle. What's one of the biggest differences you're going to notice that's that's the absent on the Cooper's Creek turtle, but very prevalent on the Barber's map turtle? Zygomatic arch. Yep. You got it. I know that one. Yeah. That that's a good that's a good trivia question. I don't think it, that would be kind of a strange. All right, you've got. Well, okay, I'm I'm safe. But if you've got one more, then we can. No, that, that was five. That was five. five. That was five? Yeah. That was four, yeah. right? No, that was five. That was five. You like some part like A and B part ones B. in there too, so. Okay, I guess the western and the eastern most. So I got, oh, what did I get? Four, okay, yeah, so I'm good. All right, I'm safe. Okay, well, that, you, that was decently tough, but next time you're going to have to go crazy because I'm going crazy. I'm, I'm going all out next time, so just be warm. Yeah, I didn't whoever want to, gets I didn't it. Want, but whoever I don't want to have I don't want to like ask like six. I don't want to ask five questions that are so obscure that nobody knows the answers to any of them, because that would just be awkward for me just sitting here reading questions that no one knows the answer, and I'm sure like, everybody feels the same way. So it's kind of yeah, difficult. You know, I say I say that, and then when I'm like, ah oh, man, I, I actually wanted to get it right. So I, I think you like make them hard within reason, and especially like I don't know, keep in mind like the person you're asking, like. I know I'd probably and, get like a zero or a one, like if Jack asked me those. My, uh, well, from my area of knowledge, like you could easily ask me questions that this same kind of difficulty, I have no idea what, what I have no clue. Like I just have, these are all some, like things that I would know, like giant tortoises, megacephaly, alligator snapping turtles. That's kind of the stuff. Huh? So the consensus here was that my question about the current accepted name of the southwestern longneck was not appropriate. I, I won't do that again. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, I think that was. Dude, oh man. It's yeah, Macrocheladina so. blonda for the record at this point. So. I think another thing to take into account is the viewers. Like we, we got to make sure it's it's. And they there's they still get something out of it. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's actually a good point. Does anyone need to know that? It's sort of the thing. Like, if we're just uh, like, all right, I'm. Uh, yeah. I wrote them all down on the back. 
of a sticky note. Are you still? Are you at your house now? Or are you still watching? Your house watching, right? No, right now I'm at my own house. I mean, these are my uh, turtle shells. But uh, and like literally yeah, after you're this call, big, dude. Have you been? Have you been pumping some iron? <laughs> yeah. You just flexed. Nice. Wait, did Ken just flex? I missed. I missed Ken, it. Ken just leaned back and 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 popped uh and and popped a flex on us. Well, Jack's just a different breed. I mean, you can't tell through the the he, the fact that his nose has been in the camera the whole time is testament to the fact that that how six five right? I think I'm like six six now. I'm pretty tall. Six six. Jesus. It is nice. Yeah, good. Are you guys?